Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, May 24th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 30. While the false prophets deceptively proclaim peace when there really is none, Jeremiah proclaims God's true word, that destruction is coming out of the north against Jerusalem. Double sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today. We have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. It's great to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Hemmer, let's talk a little context. We're doing all of Jeremiah chapter 6 today. What do we need to know about the prophet, his ministry, and the context in the book going into this text today? So Jeremiah is a southern prophet, a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, and he's sent by God to Jerusalem to cry out against Jerusalem and to warn Jerusalem about the coming destruction uh, of all Judah, but especially Jerusalem. And this, this should be a fairly easy thing for the people to grasp, because just, oh, I don't know, 150 years before Jeremiah began his uh, prophecy in the south, began his work down there, calling the people to repentance. Uh, A century and a half before that, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. So there's a very clear picture uh, for what is about to happen in the southern kingdom in what has just recently happened in the northern kingdom. That is, an army from the north has come and conquered the northern kingdom scattering people, taking people into exile, and destroying the confidence that the people had that because they possessed the land that God promised to give them, then they must be safe and secure. And God will continue to watch out for them no matter what. Despite the many warnings that he gave to the people in the northern kingdom, they were all rejected. They all despised the prophets, despised the call of God to repent, and return to obedience to the first commandment, especially to have no other gods. And in the southern kingdom, things have gone slightly better. There have been a couple good kings, a couple kings to call the southern kingdom of Judah back to the worship of the one true God. But for the most part, things in the south have have loosely mirrored the things in the north. They also have Uh, regularly despised the warnings that God has sent through his prophets. They They have a distinct advantage in the southern kingdom in that Jerusalem is in the kingdom of Judah, which means they at least have the temple. So worship of, of God, the true God, is not sufficient. Worship of the true God in the right way is not sufficient. The only thing God accepts is the worship of the one true God in the right way, in the right place. So the northern kingdom was really lost from the beginning when the kingdom split and the southern kingdom of Judah got Jerusalem and the temple. It meant that only they had any hope of having those, checking those three boxes, worship of the right God in the right way, in the right place. And so yet... The kings in the south have regularly allowed worship to be done in places that are not Jerusalem. The the people of Judah have embraced the gods of the Canaanites who were there before them. They have mingled the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, the God who preserved them through their wandering in the wilderness, and the God who finally made good on his promise to give them this land that he had promised to their forefathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He brings them into the promised land, and almost as soon as he brings his people into the promised land, they begin to get complacent and lazy. They don't fulfill God's command to get rid of all those who worship false gods. When when he brings them in, he commands them, uh, get rid of all the other nations who currently possess the land, and don't even 
marry among them, and yet they do and they don't uh, get rid of all the nations who are in the land, and they don't get rid of all their false worship. And so in the southern kingdom, just as it had in the northern kingdom, worship of the false Canaanite gods, the gods of the nations who were there, the gods of the nations around them, all of that has infected the worship, so they're not checking that box, the worship of the one true God. They're not conducting worship according to the way that God had instituted it. He lays out the the pattern of sacrifices, the means by which he intends to impart his gift of holiness to his people. Um, And even though they have the temple in Jerusalem, the one place where God allows that worship of him to happen, they still have many high places. And so numerous kings in the southern kingdom of Judah allow those high places to persist, allow the worship of other gods, even sometimes in the temple, to to persist. And so Jeremiah is sort of God's last-ditch effort to call his people back to repentance. Um, as as the, the chronology of Jeremiah unfolds, he'll, he'll be there when the southern kingdom is finally destroyed by the Babylonian army. So all of that, there's, there's a, a definite urgency. And, and at times it seems like sort of a fatalism to Jeremiah's prophecy. When he calls people to repentance, it's very urgent. And, and when he warns about God's coming disaster, sometimes it seems quite fatalistic, as if the time for repentance has passed and the opportunity for God's people to return to him and avoid the impending destruction, the outpouring of God's wrath and judgment upon them has passed. But as we know, say, for instance, from the sermon of of Jonah to the people of Nineveh, God's anger is about to boil over, and he's ready to destroy the Ninevites. And Jonah's very fatalistic sermon to them elicits, it's just four words in Hebrew, 40 days Nineveh destroyed, uh, and and Jonah then goes up the hill to watch the fireworks. There's There's no offer in there unless you repent, but... Nevertheless, the people have heard that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is by nature merciful. And so even when the king of Nineveh declares national repentance, saying, who knows, maybe God will yet relent, his threats of judgment are never fatalistic, because then he does not pour out his wrath completely on the people of Nineveh. And so even when Jeremiah feels very much like that threat that God's wrath is imminent and there's nothing you can do to stave it off. He is always, at his core, merciful. And so when, when the warnings sound dire, it's because his mercy is driving him to this last-ditch effort to get people to repent and to return to him. So that's, that's sort of a long introduction to bring us up to where Jeremiah is now in chapter 6. He's got these, these warnings about... Uh, like a boiling pot at the north about to tip over and swallow up the people, warnings about all the threats of of the nations from the north, Um, God's declaration of imminent judgment, Um, all the false prophets are giving people false hope, saying judgment will never happen, All all the prophets who tell you that if you don't return to Yahweh, You'll be destroyed. They're they're off their rocker. God's not like that. He's much more accommodating. I mean, you can hear a lot of the same kind of sentiment in in revisionist views of God and and His desire for the the pure worship of His people and the pure devotion of our hearts to Him. Still today, people want to say God's not. He's not such a jerk. He's not such a killjoy. He's not so absolute with His law. Uh, and, and with his desire to be the only object of everyone's worship. And that, that brings us right to the beginning of chapter 6. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's jump right into the text then. That was a very helpful introduction. We are going to see in this text some of that mercy of God, that, it, that even though it, it's urgent, it's not too late. So let's, let's read. We're in Jeremiah 6, beginning at the first verse. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa, and raise a signal on Beth Hakarim, for disaster looms out of the north, and great destruction. The lovely and delicately bred I will destroy, the daughter of Zion. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents around her. They shall pasture each in his place. Prepare war against her. Arise, and let us attack at noon. 
Woe to us for the day declines, for the shadows of evening lengthen. Arise, and let us attack by night, and destroy her palaces. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. As a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. I think we'll pause there, Pastor Remember That was through verse 8 of Jeremiah chapter 6. Some pretty strong language, as we've grown accustomed to, I think, from Jeremiah here at the beginning. The, the very place where I think people would have thought this is safe, Jerusalem, Jeremiah says, no, you need to get out of there. And he warns the, the people of Benjamin, that's where he's from, you know, look out, disaster is coming upon Jerusalem. What do, what do you see happening in this section? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. People had believed that if they had Jerusalem and if they had the temple, then there's, there's no way that God would let disaster befall the city of his possession, the city where he in his temple dwells with his people. It's, it's a privileged thing to have Jerusalem, to dwell in her midst. It must be the, the safest place on earth. And so Jeremiah's warning is that, in fact, it's, it's the opposite of that. It's the most dangerous place on earth. And Jerusalem's fate is so precarious that when God is against her, she could be defeated even by shepherds. That's just a, just a strange little verse there, uh, verse 3, and then 4, the, the war cry of the shepherds, um, who themselves are not sort of notorious warriors, but even the shepherds who haven't left their flocks, but even with their flocks, shepherds encamping against Jerusalem, if God has set himself against her, will be enough to overthrow her. So, and then, and then you get into verse 6, and you, you see that it is, it's Yahweh Sebaoth, the Lord of armies, who's instructing the adversaries of Jerusalem in the plans for battle. Cut down her trees, build up a siege mound against her, that is, to, to overtake her walls. There's, this, is this, this, this Jerusalem is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. So you see where the people had, had grown complacent and had come to trust sort of idolatrously, right? Maybe, maybe like uh, in the way that, that some people get, get, so, uh, get their feathers ruffled so much when you try to remove them from uh, the, the membership roster at church. Hmm. Um, you know, they, haven't, they haven't come to church in a decade, but by God they are going to have their names on the membership roster no matter what. I mean, maybe there's perks there. Maybe it will upset Grandma and Grandpa if they're removed or whatever. But, but then, see, the, the church has become a kind of idol for them. They don't use it as the means by which to encounter a holy God and let him deliver through his word and sacraments his gifts of forgiveness and life and salvation, but it's just a kind of lucky rabbit's foot. Well, that's exactly how the people are treating Jerusalem and the temple here, as long as we have Jerusalem, the content of our worship doesn't matter as much, the faith of our hearts doesn't matter as much, because we dwell in Jerusalem, and there's no way God will ever set himself against Jerusalem. But now he's laying out the battle plans for uh, a, a band of people least likely to overtake the city of Jerusalem, and, and when he is against it, there's nothing that will preserve Jerusalem. We get this little warning there in verse 8. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. It's a little bit, a little bit of uh, that breaking in of God's mercy. First, the call of Jeremiah to the Benjaminites, his, his fellow tribesmen, um, just to get out of Jerusalem. But even now at verse 8, there's just a little bit of... of uh, God's mercy, opportunity for repentance and restoration, breaking through these very dire threats. He warned Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust and make you uh, a desolate place, a land 
completely shorn of inhabitants. Verse six, which you identified, is is one that really is quite striking to me. To to see the title used, as you said, Yahweh of of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, translated in the ESV, that he's actually the one directing these foreign armies, giving the battle plans, even the you know a siege mound. You even see that that's that's how Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon in five eighty seven BC is by a it's a prolonged siege. It's it's quite striking to to see God Himself using these foreign armies against his own people. I, I'm not sure. I, any further thoughts on that? Because it really, I think it, we don't often think of the Lord in that way. And maybe that's the same ideas that that's going through the heads of the minds of Judah and Jerusalem. Like how could the Lord possibly send foreign armies against us? I mean, I, I think that that goes to show just how far the people of Judah and Jerusalem have really fallen from the true faith. I think that's, that's exactly right. That, it is intended to expose the fact that, that they have become rebellious against the Lord of hosts, against Yahweh Tzabaoth. Um, and so it's not he who has suddenly changed his will and desires for them, but their long-standing rebellion against him will finally lead to the, the marshalling of the armies around them now led by the commander-in-chief of the angelic armies hmm. against against even them, against even Jerusalem. Hmm. And and yet, as you said there in verse 8, you get that, that breaking through of God's mercy. You'll be warned right now so that I don't do this, right? I mean, lest I turn from you. Be warned right now. And, and as you said, sometimes, Jeremiah, you do get that sense that it's coming, and it is. And yet the Lord always preaches in that hope that his people will turn. And and for folks like Jeremiah who do believe this word and and surely other faithful Israelites who are are there in Jerusalem and Judah, words like this do provide hope in the midst of all the destruction that that comes around them. So it is a it's a bit of a a breath of a fresh air there at verse 8 and we're going to see a few other places here as well where that that offer for repentance, restoration breaks through even in the midst of all this law. Any further thoughts on those 8 verses before we move a little further in the text? No, I think that's that's very good. And you're right, we do get little little glimmers of God's offers of mercy and forgiveness now. Those those will be much bigger and much more obvious later on in the text. But even now, even in the midst of judgment uh, and in ominous threat, God's nature to be merciful can't help but but show through. Um, we we talk about the the proper work and the alien work of God, and I think that's helpful here to remember. That, that wrath and punishment are really foreign to God. They are not his MO, not his normal way of dealing with his creation. He does, he does not delight in, in punishing sinners, in the death of the wicked. He delights in being merciful. And so even, even in here, in the midst of threats of annihilation, the land being left with zero inhabitants, yet here it is, be warned, lest I turn from you in disgust. So even, even here, even amid the threats of, of God's judgment, he has not quite yet turned from them. The so, te- though they are certainly oh, turned from him. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the text continues in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel. Like a grape gatherer, pass your hand again over its branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. 
That was Jeremiah 6, verses 9 to 15. Let's pause there again, Pastor Hammer. We've got about five minutes here before the break to at least start looking at these. You have more of this talk from the Lord of the judgment that's coming, this idea of a grape gatherer going over the vineyard again to, to make sure every last grape has been seen. You get some some of Jeremiah's own reflection and, and how how this is affecting him. Start taking us into some of this conversation that's happening here between the Lord and Jeremiah especially. Yeah, you're right. If we ended with just a little glimmer of hope in verse 8, now for these verses, uh, it's just a, a barrage of hopelessness. Mm. Uh, the, the people have so thoroughly rejected God that he says their ears are uncircumcised. Uh, and this, this, I think, is a, is a foreshadowing of what Paul will say about circumcision later, that it's not just the external removal of the flesh that puts one into a right relationship. What counts, Paul will say, is the circumcision of the heart, uh, foreshadowing what God will do in baptism, wherein he delivers his gift of faith to his people. But here, their, their ears are of a foreign nation. Their ears are unclean in the presence of God, and their ears are in perpetual rejection of the Word of God and rebellion against him, as their Lord. The word of the Lord to them is an object of scorn. They despise the word. They, not only do they not take pleasure in it, but it is a scornful thing to them. And you're right then in verse 11, it's, it's as if the voice of Jeremiah interrupts the words of the Lord that he's been given to deliver, uh, the sort of direct quotation of the Lord and, and his sort of heartfelt concern. I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. And then he returns to uh, a word of prophecy against the people that no person will be spared from the outpouring of this wrath. The children, the young men, the husband, the wife, the elderly, the very aged, that covers the the whole range of, of all mankind who are dwelling in Jerusalem. Their houses will be turned over to others, their fields to others, their wives to others. I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the Lord, against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. That there, there will be no one spared, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no one seeks for God. This is a very similar way to how St. Paul speaks when, when he speaks about the complete rejection of God by all people in the flesh. We're all descendants of Adam. We all inherit his rebellion and his rejection of faith. All the, all the children of Adam, like the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem here, uh, have uncircumcised ears that cannot listen. Uh, all of us despise the word of the Lord collectively. This, this is just our plot, but it is, it's, it's the work of God by means of the Holy Spirit to raise from the dead our, our dead and deaf ears, our rebellious, cancerous hearts. That's, that's all his work and what he intends to accomplish even in this stern warning from the prophet Jeremiah. And then the last three verses here, we, we take a look at some of the, the sermons of the false prophets. They've tried to salve the wound of my people, God warns, by saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That peace, peace is, is exactly that. It's a refusal to preach God's call to repentance, a refusal to preach his, his crystal clear, unambiguous word of the law, his, his very straight-to-the-point call to return to him and to him alone. Um, so this, this is just, it's a false peace. It's also a wordplay on, on the name Jerusalem itself. Mm. Uh, the, the Salem of Jerusalem uh, is, is the same as the, the Hebrew word shalom for peace. So it's the city of peace. It's, it's the city against which no nation could stand because God is, God is with her. And so you get that sense, too. Like, if we just dwell in Jerusalem, we will have peace. But in fact, there can be no peace 
when you reject the very source of peace himself. And they're so entrenched in their sins that they're willing to commit abomination without any sense of shame, without any willingness to blush, that they no, no sin is worthy of being hidden anymore. Now sins are celebrated and uh, not just tolerated, but embraced as, as acceptable alternative lifestyles. I mean, so there's, there's nothing new underneath the sun. The kinds of things that we grapple with today, we're not the people who dwell in Jerusalem, we're not the people who dwell in God's promised land, but we are the, the people of his church who are constantly beset by, by the kinds of false prophets who say, peace, peace, when really the only peace that we can have is the kind of peace that, that Jesus delivers. He, he has a similar kind of uh, lament for his people when he's entering into Jerusalem and, and he weeps over Jerusalem and he says, would that you had known this day the things that make for peace, is Jesus' lament as he enters into, into Jerusalem before he's about to die on the cross. The only thing that makes for peace between a holy God and a sinful, rebellious mankind is the death of Jesus on the cross. And in the cross, there's no accommodation of sin. There's no celebration of sin. There's no downplaying sin as if it's no longer offensive to a holy God. It's so offensive to God. It so alienates people from God that he's willing to give even his son into human flesh and into the death that every sinner deserves on the cross so that he could make peace. In him, there is peace. But outside of him, there can be no peace. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFO, looking at Jeremiah 6 with Pastor Jeff Himmer. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 24th. We're studying Jeremiah 6, verses 1 to 30 with Pastor Jeff Himmer. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Himmer, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 9 through 15, closing with that thought that the false prophets are proclaiming peace. There's not actually peace because there is no real faith. The people are simply doing what they want without any shame. And as you said, nothing new under the sun. What Jeremiah preached then is still quite applicable to us today. Let's keep working our way through the text. We're picking up again in Jeremiah 6, now at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, Pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. Right, we'll pause there again. That was all the way through verse 21. Pastor Hammer, in the first couple of verses of this section, it seems like we get another one of those glimmers of God's grace and mercy, you know, calling his people back to these ancient paths, this good way where they will find rest, graciously giving them watchmen, saying, pay attention. But again, we have that hard hardness in, in view again of these people. Eh, we don't we don't want to do that. Take us into this section. Yeah, you're, you're right. It, it's it's as if 
it's almost in the past tense. I mean, the way that verse 16 and 17 both end with, with the past tense, but they said, we will not walk in it. And they said, we will not pay attention. It's almost as if in the midst of this offer to return to the ancient ways or this offer to, to hear the warning by means of, of the trumpet, of the watchman, well, they already, they already rejected it. So what's, what's the point? Um, so, I don't know, to me it, it feels even more fatalistic. Hmm. Um, and, and it seems almost like God is desiring to offer another, another chance for them to repent and to return to him, but, but he knows the hardness of their hearts is such that they're not going to. They've already said, we're not going to walk in it, and we're not going to pay attention. So look, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. They have, they have so hardened their hearts against any call to repentance, against any, any notion of, of repentance leading to forgiveness, of returning to the Lord in order to avert disaster, that the only, the only thing left for them is wrath and judgment. So, hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon this people because they've not paid attention to my words and they have rejected my law. So even even before they get opportunity to do it again, um, God knows their, their stubborn impenitence, their obstinate recalcitrance, their refusal to repent. It's as if they believe that the threats of his judgment are so far off, a, a thing for future generations to grapple with, if even then, that one more word of warning, one more opportunity to repent and return, at least in these verses, you'll get other, other glimmers of God's mercy that shine through. But here, it seems like God has already thrown up his hands. It's, it's kind of like uh, the, the sin against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, when, when a person persists in his unbelief and his impenitence so long that he no longer even cares about threats of God's wrath. He no longer cares that maybe he's sinned against the Holy Spirit's call to repent so often that, that he just is no longer interested in repentance, no longer interested in a God who offers mercy. I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. The Lord is saying, well, I could offer to let you find those paths again, to walk in the ancient ways again, that is the, the way of salvation, the way of following in, in the will and word of God, trusting in him for mercy and forgiveness. I could offer to let you hear the warning of the watchman again, but you already rejected it, and I know you're going to reject it again. So now, nations, look, this is what you get. If you persist in your rejection of me, if you persist in your rebellion against me, if you stop up your ears and refuse to hear the call of the Holy Spirit to repent and to return, destruction is not far away, it is imminent. It's breathing down your neck. It's knocking at your door. It is right here. Hmm. It, one of the, there's a couple things that strike me in this section. One is is how the Lord calls upon the nations to be a witness here. I, I can think of other sections of Scripture where the Lord will call upon heaven and earth to be you know all of creation witness this against my people, and I'm I'm sure there are other places where this is a you know the nations serve as witnesses too, but it, it struck me here particularly because at the very beginning of Jeremiah in his call, Jeremiah was called by the Lord to be a prophet to the nations. And, and I think with, and of course, later in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet will have oracles against other nations, you know, describing their sin and their need to repent. Here, as, as Jeremiah and the Lord through Jeremiah calls these nations to stand as witness against Judah and Jerusalem, it's almost like the, now the mercy is going to be extended to the nations. And, and in this way that the nations are invited to look upon Judah and see, look how they've fallen into idolatry. 
nations don't do that. You know, use use Judah as your example so that you turn from your idolatry and and turn to the one true God. The other thing that that stands out to me in this section, and it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning about what the true worship of God is. In verse 20, where the Lord is saying, you know, what what do I need this special frankincense or, or you know, distant uh, sugar cane for? It's It sounds like, again, the people have that false confidence in going through the ritual. So not only are they saying, hey, look, we're in Jerusalem, we're, we're cool. Also, they're saying we're doing the right stuff and we're even going above and beyond with this special frankincense from from Sheba. I mean, again, that that sense of false confidence comes through all of that coming to a, you know, again, the Lord says destruction is is imminent. It's coming. Here it is. Yeah, I I think you're exactly right Um, that. Here again, (laughs) you might have worship in the right place and in the right way, but it's not if it's not the worship of the one true God. If there's not really faith there that backs up the worship, then then what good is it? And the same the same is true when when the confessions speak against the the Roman Catholic doctrine of ex opera operato that that the sacraments are not beneficial to you unless you have faith that that simply by the doing the work of the sacrament is is not itself profitable to you unless you receive what the sacrament intends to give by means of faith. So you can you can have the fanciest incense and you can have, you know, the the finest sugarcane for your sacrifices, but if it's offered apart from faith, God's not impressed. And so judgment is coming. Let's let's take a look at the rest of this text. We we left off now with Jeremiah 6 verse 22. Thus says the Lord Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us, pain as of a woman in labor. Go not out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. I have made you a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Jeremiah 6, verses 22 through 30. So, Pastor Hemmer, there's really, I think, a couple of different things going on in this text. In the first part, you get the description of these enemies who are coming. And here, it's very plain that these are not simple shepherds who are coming to attack Jerusalem, but this is a well-trained army. Then it goes into this, you know, this report of the destruction coming and the utter helplessness and despair that the people of Jerusalem will know on that day. And then again, the text closes with almost a, you know, that, that fatalistic sense that the Lord says, look, I've, I've gone through the process of testing you and I haven't, I found you wanting, uh, take us into this last section. Yeah, I think you're right to kind of divide, divide this into those three parts. Um, and, and we end with this very strange metallurgy, uh, that, that is, uh, almost peculiar. We do get senses of, of God refining metals by means of the smelting process or by means of the refiner's fire. Um, and, and you're right that he's already tried that and, and it's, been, it's been found pointless. So the only, the only solution is just to discard the metal altogether. So who, who will do that? Well, it's the people coming from the north, and this, this will weave back together with the, the vision Jeremiah had um, at the beginning in chapter 1, 
with with the warnings about destruction coming from the north. It's not sometime in the future some people from somewhere will destroy you. It's it's very uh, ominous in that right now a people are coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring right now. They are picking up their weapons right now. And where are they coming? They're coming right against you. They ride on horses against you, O daughter of Zion. There's no, there's no seeming time gap. There's no opportunity for the people to turn and, and avoid this, this very imminent destruction. Um, this, this is some of the uh, most ominous parts of the text that, that we have had. I mean, it, it's, it's very, chapter 6 is very stern. Um, so certainly, like we said at the very beginning, there is always opportunity for repentance. Until you are dead, there is opportunity for repentance. Now, maybe the destruction of Jerusalem is imminent, but that doesn't mean the eternal destruction of all who dwell there. It doesn't mean all the inhabitants of Jerusalem go to hell. Certainly, there, there is a righteous remnant. There are still people in Jerusalem who are faithful to the Lord, presumably some of whom will die when, when the Babylonian army finally comes, and some of whom will get taken into exile, and some of whom will, will be dispersed. Um, so this this temporal judgment is still is still just a warning and still just a sign against the the worst thing, and that is the eternal judgment that looms against those who throughout life have have rejected God's opportunities, His invitations, His call to return to Him in faith. So even even when the temporal situation looks dire. If you're not dead yet, if you still can fog a mirror, you still have opportunity for repentance, for returning to the Lord God. Deathbed confessions, uh, deathbed repentance is, is just right. The, the one who comes at the 11th hour is received just as, just as much as the one who came at the first hour. And yet, this is what's coming. You can feel the, the ground rumbling. You can hear the, the clinking of, of the, the javelins and, and the, the spears together. You can hear the, the rattling of the bows and the, and the quivers of arrows. And those who are coming are absolutely merciless. It's like, like standing by the sea and you hear the, the roar of the sea from afar. That's, that's how it is for God's people. The, the destruction is coming. 24, we have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain is of a woman in labor. This is, this is how the people should react and respond. Um, they should know that, that the destruction is imminent, that the enemy, the invader, the, the agent of God's outpouring of his wrath is, is at the door. They're on the road. They're coming to you right now. So what hope is there? Uh, terror is on every side. Don't go out to the field. Don't walk in the road. The terror is here. Daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, mourn as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. This sackcloth and ashes is, is a perpetual sign of repentance. And, and this, is, this is now where you get that, that breaking in of, of a reminder that God is not perpetually wrathful, that he is, at the core of his being, merciful. It's, it's who he is. It's what he loves to do. He's like, he's like a mousetrap that does not want to stay stuck open. He's very easy to spring back to his natural, normal, proper way of interacting with his people, and that is mercy and forgiveness. And, and sackcloth and ashes, genuine repentance, genuine faith, 
the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people are the means by which he's sprung from wrath to mercy, turned from his alien work to his proper work. Even, even if it means that temporal destruction will still afflict his people, there's still hope that it doesn't mean eternal destruction as well. And then we end with this, uh, this bit of metallurgy. I've made you a, a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They're, they're all stubborn and rebellious. All they have are slander. They are bronze and iron. And the bellows blow fiercely in order to consume all the dross, all the impurities, all the things that, that corrupt those metals. But the, even this refining is just in vain because the wicked are not removed. So the only, the only thing that the Lord can do is to reject them as, as imperfect, unpurifiable silver. The, the wickedness has, has so beset them, it's become a, a part of who they are. Impenitence, rebellion, rejection of God, obstinacy, hard-heartedness has become exactly how you can identify these people who are so rebellious against the Lord that his only option is, is finally, though he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, eventually his anger comes, and it comes now uh, in, in the form of, of the Babylonian army marching on Jerusalem, besieging Jerusalem. There is, there is always hope, though, um, that even if temporary afflictions beset us, that those need not signify eternal punishment. Especially, we know uh, that, that the, the solution God offers for the people, the sins of the people of Judah, for the sins of the people of Babylon, the, the army that will attack, for the sins of, of the people of first century Palestine, for the sins of people today, is Jesus. And, and the place where all of, all of his hot, angry wrath is poured out is on the cross. All this other stuff, it, it pales in comparison to what Jesus had to endure on the cross, because there he endures the eternal wrath of God. The punishment, uh, the eternal punishment for all sinners. He is rejected by God. He endures hell and separation from God in our place. So that even even when God has to use the Babylonian army to call his people to repentance, there's still a worse punishment that gets poured out on Jesus so that for those of us who receive the Spirit's work to deliver to us his gift of faith, his, his work of repentance, we need not be lost, we need not perish eternally. That there is one who says, peace, peace to us, and that is the one, just like in the liturgy, after the consecration of bread to be the body of Jesus and the consecration of wine to be the blood of Jesus, the, the pastor turns around and, and holds up the body and blood of Jesus and says, the peace of the Lord be with you always. That in Jesus, and in Jesus alone, there can be peace for, for those of us who are by nature rebellious against God. As you were talking there about the, the Pax Domini there of the, the liturgy and the service of the sacrament, the idea of the, you know, that peace comes only through Jesus, I, I've seen an, an image, I'm not, I want to say it's from World War II, but I could be wrong, of a, a military chaplain you know, presenting the body and blood of Jesus before some soldiers, and and in the background is all of this destruction. I don't think I'm making that image up in my mind. I, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure there's an image like that. I'm pretty sure I've seen it on social media. But that's, I mean, like that's the hope. I think that kind of picture is the hope that Jeremiah would love to preach 
to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And as you said, is is there in other places, maybe not so much in chapter six, even though it breaks through here and there, but that's that's where the true peace comes from, even in the midst of these afflictions that, that we endure. And some of them, due to you know our own sins that bring these consequences upon us, we endure the consequence of sin so often. Where does the peace come from? It it doesn't it doesn't come from the the ritual or you know having the right place, but it comes from the the one true God who is Jesus Christ who comes among us in our midst through that very body and blood. It's a very powerful image. Pastor Amber, we got about two and a half minutes here to to wrap things up. Final thoughts on, on Jeremiah six and and how this is a text that matters for us still today. Well, I, th- I think it matters in that our flesh still inclines in, in the way that the people of God did then. We're inclined to substitute the, the giver of the, the, the gift that God gives for the giver of those gifts himself. We're inclined to trust in, in peace and prosperity instead of in, in the one who is the source of, of peace and prosperity. So we're, we're just, we're not unlike the people who, as soon as they came into the promised land, were relieved to have the land and forgot the God who promised to give them that land. We, we do the exact same thing. And so we need a similar kind of warning that without, without real faith, without fear, love, and trust in God above all things, we are just as lost and just as hopeless as, as the people here. And so the solution for us is the same as the solution for them, and that is to hear the Word, to let the Word of God have its way with us, to bring us into repentance and into faith, and and to bring us into that filial trust in a God who is, by His nature, merciful. A mercy that He demonstrates to us by means of the cross, a mercy that He lavishes upon us, Sunday after Sunday, in his word and in his sacraments. And it's not, it's not a matter of now, now we have to worship the right God in the right way, in the right place. It's rather that in a myriad number of places, we have to receive the right gifts from the right God. So there's, there's great comfort to us in that, that he does not, he, he, he sends his gifts out to the ends of the earth. And so now we don't, we don't trust in any particular place, in any kind of Jerusalem, to be the safe haven from, from the wrath of God and the afflictions of the world, but we trust in the places where Jesus has promised to meet us, to be the safe havens from the wrath of God and the afflictions of the world. In his word and in his sacraments, where we encounter the Jesus who gives us peace, is where we find safety from God's wrath. Pastor Jeff Himmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 30. Pastor Himmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's been fun, Pastor Apple, as always. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Jeremiah, comments on the show, the series, please get in touch with us. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or download the KFUO app. Use the open mic feature there to record a 60-second message and send it to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.